Most of them are in here, but I forgot a couple as I was putting this together on Friday. So the first one uh, is for those of you on the advisory committee, there is a meeting on April 3rd at 6.30. So that's the advisory group, April 3rd at 6.30. Um, and that is to prepare for the, the quarterly meeting that will come up soon after that. A reminder that our, our Good Friday service is at 7 p.m., which is uh, when we've done that each year. And hopefully you can all join us and invite others to come. It's a great time to remember why we celebrate Easter and actually why we even show up on the Lord's Day each week. There is actually no other reason for us to do this other than the fact that we worship a living Christ who lived, died, and rose again for us. Uh, You'll see in there that um, the potluck is next week. So we have moved that like we do Uh, I think we did it last year too, so that it doesn't fall on Easter. We want to make sure we give families their time on Easter morning. Uh, So the potluck will be next week. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. We'll celebrate that next week. Uh, You'll see in there also a note about Easter pictures. So um, Jim Miner, who's a professional photographer and a member of the church, is uh, giving us a gift this year. He's going to set up in the fireside room, and since uh, Easter's... uh, if you're interested in certain things or how to use your gifts or even what your gifts are because oftentimes we start serving in areas just to test it out. So um, see any of, any of us and we can help you with that. Let's shift our hearts to worship this morning. We're going to start actually we'll break a little from tradition. We're not going to read a psalm. We're going to read out of the prophet Isaiah chapter 43. And uh, there's two reasons that we're going to start here this morning. One is it just points to uh, God being the God who not only creates, but the God who saves. And that's going to be important both this morning as we're back in Jonah and next week as well as we go through Jonah's prayer. The other reason is just, uh, I'll mention it in the sermon, but this constant use of, of the waters throughout the Old Testament to point to the chaos in the world and the death that's out there and God's deliverance to us through those waters. Something, again, you see in Jonah, but comes into play so clearly in verse 2 here. So because it's long, we're only going to read the first 13 verses and then verse 25. Again, this is Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, 
It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come humbled before you this morning, confessing our sins and trusting in your word and your promise that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we bow before your majesty. We thank you as our creator and the giver of life. We also come knowing that you are more than a creator, but a redeemer of your people. You sent your son to save sinners like us. And so we come with great thanksgiving this morning, Lord, praising your holy name. Lord, we pray this morning that you will indeed be glorified by our singing that you'll be glorified by the preaching of your word. We come to you as those who were once blind, but whom you have given sight, who once were deaf, but now can hear, and we pray that your spirit will continue to work among us this morning, opening our eyes, opening our ears, and most of all, opening our hearts, that your word would transform us, and for this period, that you would remove all distractions, and that we might look to you and you alone, praise you, and worship you. We pray all this in the name of your Son, who you gloriously sent to us, showing us your love and your mercy, and we trust in his grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, John. It's a very humble man, and he forgot to announce that they will be going on tour this summer, right? <laughs> I can't remember where their first stop is, but uh, he, he really does want to be younger so that the dancing, you'll have to wait for when they're on tour, but we are returning to the book of Jonah this morning, and we're getting to that verse that I think everybody wants to get to, right? Verse 17, we finally get to the fish, and here we see that the great fish is sent and swallows Jonah, and he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and that's what you see in your Bibles in verse 17, but why the whale, right? Right? That sort of fascinated me. It's not really that important, but you see it referenced all the time, Jonah and the whale. You can search on the internet. A lot of the kids' stories are kind of centered around that, and you learn about that, and yet the species of marine life that God used is really not the point of the book of Jonah. But I thought some would find it interesting, like I did, and maybe not, but you'll just have to bear with me as I walk through this. There's a couple of reasons why the whale came about in this story. The first reason, of course, is we just like to know, so we want to try to understand the things of the Bible in ways that we can see and we can touch and we can feel and we've experienced in our own lives, and this happens for good reasons because we try to explore these things, and it happens for bad reasons. Liberal theologians have spilled a lot of ink about whether a whale could swallow a man or whether a man could live in a whale, and 
Uh, it just goes on and on from there. But there's actually a more interesting reason why the whale comes about in this story, and it's a translation, a Bible translation issue. In the Hebrew that you see in Jonah, the words are quite simple. Gad de Gaul, it just means great fish. There's no whale, there's no description. So for whale, you actually have to turn to the Greek in the New Testament, and you get this word ketus. And that is the word that Jesus uses when he's speaking in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. And he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, which is the ketus in Greek. At the time, if you go back and look at Greek mythology, ketus means sea monster, but it can also mean great fish, but there's still no whale. So where does the whale come? Well, you again go back in time and you go back into the fourth century and you see Jerome translating the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin for the first time. And when he did, he translated this Greek word into the Latin word ketus or cetus. Some of you who know Latin can correct me. And it sat that way for the next thousand years or so. And language continues to develop just as it does in our own time. It means different things. Words take on new meanings. And over that thousand year period, ketus, the Latin, became synonymous with whale. And in fact, our study of whales today is called cetology or catology, however you want to pronounce that. So over the next 12 centuries, that continued to develop, and by 1534, William Tyndale began his work to translate the Bible for the first time into English. And when he got to Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, he was working both from the Greek and the Latin. And since that word had came to mean whale in English, you found that he translated it in the New Testament as whale, not as great fish. Then in 1611, King James commissions his translation of the Bible. And so anybody carrying a King James Version today in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, will still see it because they relied heavily on the work of William Tyndale when they translated the King James Bible. Something around 80% of it is the same as his work. So you see whale being used. And all of that is kind of interesting. It's sort of interesting. But here's the real point. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all if we can identify the type of marine life that God used. One author I thought captured this well when he said, if this is a special creature for a special purpose, and we know that it was, it swallowed a man, it kept him alive for three days, if it's a special creature for a special purpose, we don't need to search our modern biology books to try to figure out if we can identify what creature that might have been when God doesn't reveal that to us. In fact, I think it's a good illustration of what God says in Isaiah. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And there's just certain things that we don't need to know. He says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. When you look at this text and you look at where we're at in Jonah, the bigger question is not what kind of marine life swallowed Jonah. The bigger question is why didn't the book of Jonah end at chapter 1, verse 16? When Jonah was thrown into the sea and the storm that God had hurled upon the sea stopped when this disobedient prophet was put to death in a way. Shouldn't that be the end? It tells us that Jonah disobeyed God, God exercised his judgment, and he saved the sailors. You could make a little bit of a gospel story there. But the book of Jonah 
is not just about God's sovereign rule, about God's sovereign authority, about God's sovereign justice. It's about His sovereign grace. And that is a theme that is found all throughout Scripture. And as I thought about saying that, I made me think, I have used that term that God is sovereign multiple times as we talk through Jonah, and I'm going to use it multiple times more because this whole book points to that. And let me just tell you one reason why that is so important. If you study theology, you're always going to get to the doctrine of God, and you're going to start with either God's holiness or God's sovereignty, depending on the author. They're very intertwined. But it is so important to understand that God is sovereign over every single thing. And I'll give you a small example of why that is vital. What is the attribute of God that we like to talk about today? We like to talk about God's love. God is love, the Bible tells us. And you see people bend and twist that in all sorts of ways. But the reason that relates to sovereignty is that if God is not sovereign in an absolute sense, then you can actually have no assurance of His love. Because there's always someone or something or you or some event that could trump God that would cause God not to be loved or to love you in an imperfect way or to love you a little bit less as something else stepped in the way. And that is why the sovereignty of God is taught everywhere in Scripture and it is essential to understand for your assurance of God's love and God's justice and God's mercy and God's grace and God's salvation. And so we turn to Jonah to witness now this morning God's outpouring of grace. And in this, we're going to see that the fulfillment of it points to Jesus Christ in His work. We're going to start reading in verse 15, just to put it in context, but our entire focus will be on verse 17. So they, the sailors, picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will open our hearts this morning to your word. That in this you will show us Christ. That we will see his beauty. And that we will turn to him and trust him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the early 1900s, there was a man named Harry Rimmer. And Harry Rimmer was a defender of Scripture. And he did this in a lot of different scientific ways. And he wrote this about verse 17 of Jonah. He said, this is the first of two verses which ruin the narrative. I thought it was interesting. If this verse and chapter 2, verse 10, which talks about the fish spitting Jonah back up, if this verse and verse 210 were removed, then the prophecy would be plausible for modern readers. Then it would be believable, right? Because this is what creates the stumbling stone for people, is trying to figure out these miracles. God's Word has always been under attack. From the very moment the serpent entered the garden in Genesis chapter 3, when he began to twist God's word and God's promises out of order, and he said to Eve, did God actually say, uh, you should go back and question it? From that moment on into our present day, it is always under attack. And Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 has been the focal point of that attack for many modern scholars. Those who doubt Scripture, they're prone to argue that it's impossible for a fish 
to swallow a man and for the man to live in that fish for three days and then remain alive and come back out. But you see in that argument, as you read these articles, and I'm not suggesting that you do, they're a waste of time, uh, but if you were to, you'll see that the greater problem that many unbelievers have is they don't know God. And so they rule out any supernatural activity that God could actually do. They cannot look to a God who created all things from nothing and still accept that He could perform miracles, things contrary to the nature that we understand in this life. And of course, it presents then a much bigger problem, which is present in every false religion today. And that is that the unbelieving world cannot accept that it requires a supernatural action by God to save people. Jesus prayed, didn't He, that we would be sanctified in truth, that His Word, every word of it was truth. John 17 tells us that. We know that all Scripture is breathed out by God, every single word of it, and that no prophecy, and Jonah is prophecy, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And frankly, a sea creature ordained by God for the purpose of saving a drowning man and exhibiting His saving grace is not the biggest miracle that we actually need to accept in the Bible. We have to accept that it takes a far greater miracle to bring a dead corpse, a soul headed for hell and damnation, to vibrant life, to joy in Christ, and to prepare them to spend an eternity with them. And that is the very work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 captures that for us well. It says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. That we were by nature, by our very natural abilities and births, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then you get that famous verse, the but God. God takes action. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And so it leaves us pondering the great miracle of God. How is it that a person who once hated God and rebels against him with all his might, finds himself in awe of the beauty of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? How do we find ourselves living for the good pleasure of Jesus when we start off in such the opposite state? Titus 3 paints the picture this way. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but, always this but God, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The greatest miracle is not that a fish can swallow a man. The greatest miracle is that God sent His only Son so that whoever believes in Him should never perish but have eternal life. That the eternal Son of God was born of a virgin, that He was born without sin, that He would live in perfect obedience to the will of God and is captured by the Apostle Paul. The miracle is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and then to more than 500 brothers at one time. See, the problem that the world faces is it rebels against God and against His 
word and questions the miracles or a fish in Jonah, it's actually just a heart problem. It's what the Bible tells us. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So whenever we approach Scripture and we approach texts like this, we want to be praying with the psalmist, open my eyes, Lord, that I can behold wondrous things out of your word. Because by God's grace, we need our eyes opened. We need ears to hear. Because we should always be content to believe that the God who saved us by calling us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and by pouring his wrath out on his own son for our sin and who raised Jesus from the grave and has raised him to heaven where he will stay until all his enemies become a footstool for his feet. If we can trust God for all of that, we can certainly trust God that he could send some sort of sea creature or a fish to save a man. And so our text begins, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And we can't miss in our fascination with the miracle, the point of this text, because it points to Jesus Christ, every bit of it. It points to the almighty God who sovereignly ordains the means of salvation and the ends of salvation. And so we're going to cover it under three headings that you have in your outlines, a sinner's destination, sovereign grace. And no greater love, the sign of Jonah. A sinner's destination is no great mystery to us. The wages of sin is death, we're told in Romans 6.23. And at the judgment, we know if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. A picture of eternal conscious torment for sin against a perfectly holy, thrice holy God. But it leaves us with the question that Jonah faced. Who is the sinner? Is it them? Right? Whoever the them is, when you look out in the world, is it them or is it us? And that's always the question that we're wrestling with because we all have a them in us and everyone tends to look outward instead of inward at what Christ has done to save each one of us. You see that with Jonah. For Jonah, the us, the, those who were saved, that was the good Israelites. And yet we know that they're not good at this period of time. They're in rebellion. And the them was the pagans, those wicked sinners, the bad Ninevites. He definitely had an us and them approach to this. But yet again, you turn to Scripture and there's no great mystery. There is no us and there's no them. It's just those with Christ and those without because every person who's ever been born, whoever has lived, whoever will live in the future other than the Son of God in the flesh is a sinner, all of us. That's the curse of Adam's sin. We're told just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we know this well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so you look at Jonah and you say, well, why did he do what he did? But we do it too. Instead of humbling himself before God and his word, Jonah preferred to turn away from God, to go his own way. And the sinner's path is a very, very unpleasant path and takes you to the worst destination. It was a path that led downward for Jonah, as we've seen, as it always does. It took him down to Joppa, away from God's presence, away from God's people. This would be akin to leaving the church. I'm not going to church. I don't like the preaching of the Word of God. I want an easier way. He left the presence of those in Israel and went to Joppa. Then he went down into a ship in the darkness. And last week, we left off with him sinking downward into the watery grave. 
Because we remember, as, the sa- as far as the sailors were concerned, and if you were listening to Jonah being read for the first time, as far as anybody would be concerned, Jonah was now dying. He was going down to his watery grave. He would drown in this storm. And you see that as you go through the Old Testament, the use of waters and the use of stormy waters in particular to symbolize chaos and death is numerous to say the least. It can be summed up in this phrase, the waters are the power of death and drowning, and he who is plunged into them is plunged into certain death. The Israelites notoriously feared the sea, but God's revelation is progressive, right? We have the New Testament now as well, and his signs are multifaceted. So water certainly does symbolize chaos and death. You can just think of Noah and the flood that came upon the entire earth as God's judgment, But you also see in Noah something different. You see God saving him, providing a means of salvation. So you see throughout Scripture that water is linked both to chaos and death, but also to the regenerating power of God's Spirit and the creation of new life that He gives. You see this right at the beginning of Scripture in Genesis 1-2, where it tells us the earth was without form and was void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God is ultimately always in control. He's preparing that chaos for the ultimate creation of new life. We celebrate that as Christians with the ordinance of baptism. We use the same symbolism. Romans 6 gives it to us. When we go down in the water, we symbolize what? That we're dying, that we're being buried. The old is dead. When we come out of the water, we're just mimicking a work that the Spirit of God has already done, created new life as we come out of that water. So the symbolism in Scripture is twofold. It is chaos and death on the one hand. It is regeneration, grace, and life on the other. So you're left seeing Jonah sinking into the water, the chaos. But what we actually are going to see is the sovereign grace of God, our second heading, as new life emerges. And as you move to this, you have to ask yourself, and shouldn't miss it in this story, what did Jonah do to deserve to be saved by God? Why would God save him? We've kind of covered that last week. We've noted that God didn't need Jonah to go proclaim his word. There were other prophets of the time. Amos, being one of them, was a contemporary of his. So why save him? He was a rebel. He was going the opposite direction of God. The answer, of course, is nothing at all. He didn't do anything at all to deserve saving. He knew of God. He knew God. Right? He was right when he said, if you throw me overboard, the storms will cease because it is me that God is after. He knew the will of God, but he sunk into the sea as a rebellious, unrepentant sinner. He had still not called out to God. And the second question you must ask is, what could Jonah do to save himself? He was thrown into the stormy sea. You have to remember, these experienced sailors, men of the sea, were convinced they would all die if this storm didn't stop, and Jonah is thrown into the water with nothing. And the answer, again, is nothing. He can do nothing to save himself. He's going to drown. So we need a but God here, don't we? All throughout Scripture, we get these constant but gods to save us, to grab us back, to pull us back into fellowship with Him. We need a but God here, and we get one. God takes the initiative. He says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And it's interesting, of course, that we spend a lot of time in our culture focused on the fish in this story, but the Holy Spirit does not seem to think that the fish is that important. 
It's just nonchalantly mentioned. It's barely mentioned at all in two verses. A fish came, a fish spat him out, and that's kind of it. The book of Jonah has very little to do with this fish. And what you need to see here is the emphasis is not on the means of saving Jonah. It's not on who went or the fish that was appointed to save him. Look at the subject of this divine sentence. It is not Jonah. It is not the fish. It is God. God is the subject. He is the actor. This is the same God who says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And we're not left to ask or ponder why or question whether God could have done this in a different way, a way that we could understand better. We don't see that at all here. And we are on the second heading, and I've separated this for note-taking, but you're going to see over the next few minutes there's overlap between these first two because it's not as if Jonah, being swallowed by a fish in a stormy sea, immediately thinks to himself, this is awesome, God has just saved me from drowning. That is not what would be going through his head as he is swallowed by some sort of sea creature. It's highly unlikely Jonah would have identified it either because he's now in its stomach. It's only going to be after he looks back, after he's on dry land, after he's given the opportunity to follow God, that he's going to see this as divine deliverance. But in the moment, as he's cast over to his certain death and now swallowed by the fish, this is nothing more than his entrance into death, his entrance into hell. That is his experience. He is now separated from the goodness of God, completely away from his people, Away from his God, he's in the darkness, he is conscious, and this is where he will spend eternity. The French philosopher Jacques Ellul commented on Jonah, and he wrote this, So far as Jonah was concerned, his entombment in the fish was a final judgment beyond remedy. It's damnation. The fish is in fact hell. Jonah has thus traversed the agony and death and come to this hell prepared by God to enforce the total separation of man and God. If you think that that's a step too far, you have to remember how the sea creatures, and sometimes called Leviathan, are are spoken about in the Old Testament. They sparked fear in the hearts of the Israelites. They were spoken of as creatures who were evil and wicked and opposed to God. Isaiah 27.1, for example, notes that on the day that God delivers Israel, He will slay the mighty sea creatures. That is one of the things he will do. Psalm 74 says, Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. Jonah is a prophet of God, remember. Jonah would be well aware of the teachings of Scripture. These texts and other texts that speak of the great danger and the evil of the creatures at sea, and yet Jonah does not get cast over and find himself in the arms of an angel carrying him out of the waters. In fact, he doesn't even find himself saved from the great fish. He's swallowed, and into darkness he goes. And here Jonah gets a taste. He gets a preview of God's judgment that was so important for him as he would go to Nineveh. But it wasn't just that. It was actually a sign of God's sovereign grace through judgment that is going to bring Jonah to his knees in prayer. Jonah needed to learn that God was very serious about his commandments. Remember, our God does not change. He's very serious about his commandments today. Jonah needed to see that God is relentless in pursuing his children. 
He will not just let them slip away in disobedience. Our God will not be mocked. His power extends over all creation. And so Jonah needed to learn. As one author said, the belly of the fish is not a happy place to live, but it is a good place to learn. And that's something we should see in all of our suffering and trials, right? It's not a happy place to live. It's not a happy experience to go through, but it is always a great place to learn, to learn about God, to learn about His love, to learn about His sovereignty, to learn how we must trust and rely on Him. And the key word in our text is that God appointed, God appointed this great fish to swallow Jonah. It was God's work. God is Lord over all, all creation. It's not the last time we'll see it in the book of Jonah, the same word being used. God appoints a plant to shade Jonah. God will appoint a worm to eat the plant. God will send this hot, dry east wind, everything to teach Jonah a lesson. God has no limits, no limits whatsoever in what he uses to achieve his redemptive plan. He's sovereign. He is sovereign over the initiation and the administration of salvation of his people. He, re- he says in Isaiah 43, we read it this morning, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. You cannot look anywhere else. I declared, I saved, I proclaimed, I am God, he said. And God's saving activity, superintending means in both nature and in people to reach ends of saving people, it's all throughout Scripture. Just a couple of examples. You could look at Genesis 6. You look at Noah. The preparation of the ark to deliver him and his family through the waters of judgment. This is not something Noah came up with. This is something God provided. Genesis 22. You see Abram tested in his faith, getting ready to sacrifice Isaac. And God provides a ram as a a sacrifice. Instead of Isaac, he saves Isaac. You see it in the prophets, when the prophet Elijah is running away from God, fearing for his life, God sustains him. He has a greater plan for Elijah. He sends ravens carrying bread so that he can stay alive. Amazing God. You see it even in the famous episode of the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Acts chapter 8. Here's this guy, and otherwise pagan, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah, has no idea what it means, and yet God had prepared the deacon, Philip, the evangelist, and made sure he was there to explain the meaning of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the book of Isaiah, such that he was saved and baptized. And in our text this morning, you see something no less surprising. God saved Jonah from drowning by a fish. The amazing thing about this is God saved Jonah in spite of his disobedience. God didn't save Jonah because he was righteous. God saved Jonah when he was running away from him. It was a display of God's mercy, a display of God's grace, a reminder to all of us that we don't start off running around looking and begging God for a solution to our separation from Him and for our own sin. That's just not the way we work. We're reminded of the gospel truth instead, that though that God shows His love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still running from Him, He saved us. And that is why we'll see next week the central verse in all of Jonah is chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. We must trust in Him. But ultimately, we cannot even interpret 
what is going on here in this story, in this belly of the fish, without turning to the later revelation of God in the words of Jesus. Because that is the way God progressively reveals His redemptive plan throughout time. And that takes us to our last heading, no greater love, the sign of Jonah. And hopefully this will pull it all together. Because the text says God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and then it adds, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Such an odd thing to add in a way. Why be so specific about three days and three nights in the belly of a fish? If you take yourself back, take yourself back to before the coming of Christ, when you're living in the Old Testament period, it would be a very fair interpretation to say that this was to symbolize the death of Jonah, that this was his hell, temporary as we know that it turned out to be. Because in the cultural and historical time period, three days signified a person was truly dead, spiritually removed from this life on earth. And you might think of the miraculous resurrection of Lazarus in John 11. Jesus finds out Lazarus is dead and in the tomb, and he could have gotten there in about two days. That's when he finds out, but he waits until he's been in the tomb three days and then four, and then calls Lazarus out of the tomb. If you ever ask yourself why that is, it's because there can then be no question about the life-giving authority of the Son of God in the flesh. He is God. There, There is no argument that Lazarus was not dead. He was in there for more than three days. And so you could interpret it that way, but we have to work from the lesser to the greater, so it said, and there's something greater, we know, has now appeared. And so we're going to spend a little time in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. Because one of the phrases that you hear, I think I've used them before in sermons, when you study the Old Testament, is you see types. You see types and shadows of the ultimate reality, the ultimate fulfillment that will come later in Christ. And a type is not a kind of something. A type used this way means that it's pointing forward. It's an event that we see in the Old Testament or it's an individual in the Old Testament. The interpretation and understanding of which goes far beyond to the rightful fulfillment or the antitype and that thing that is being pointed to. I'll give you a simple example. Think of the Passover lamb and the Passover supper celebrated by the Jews. This was a type. It pointed forward and can only be understood when you understand the perfect Lamb of God who was sent to fulfill this, to be the antitype who made the once-for-all sacrifice of sins to deliver His people from death and bring them into life. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all that points to Him in the Old Testament. This is how He opened the eyes, remember, of the disciples on the road to Emmaus and later the disciples in the upper room showing them this. We know that Christ holds forever an office, threefold office, of the great prophet, priest, and king. Everything in the Old Testament in those offices pointed forward to the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus. And so if we were looking at all of Matthew chapter 12, it's amazing because he begins by pointing to King David. And then he later points to the priests, and as he comes to the conclusion of talking of both of these things, he says something greater has now appeared in Christ. He is the great king, the final king. He is the great priest. There are no other priests. And that leaves the office of prophet. And then he's going to open our eyes a bit here so that we can see in Jonah a type that points to Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment. In verse 38, Jesus says, 
It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus makes comparison with Jonah in two ways in this text. First, it is that Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights, and Jesus will be entombed in the earth for three days and three nights. The second thing he points to is the preaching of Jonah and the results. Jonah, we know from later, will come preaching a message of repentance, right? You need to stop sinning, stop rebelling against God and turn to Him in faith, in trust. And that preaching was validated by the miracle, by the fact that He was in the belly of the fish and that He was spit up. Jesus will come doing the same thing. What is His message? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is near. Same message, repent. And it will be validated by the ultimate miracle, and that is resurrection from the grave after He was crucified, dead, and buried for three days. And Jesus tells this story to warn all of us in this present generation that there is something, actually someone in Him that is far greater than Jonah, far greater than even King David, far greater than the temple, far greater than the priesthood, far greater than the wisdom of Solomon, all of these things covered in Matthew 12. Something far greater is now here in Christ. And so we would do well to turn from sin, to turn to Jesus Christ, to trust Him. There is no one greater. So we must trust in Him and Him alone. Or He says that on that final day, we will be condemned even by these former pagans, these wicked men and women of Nineveh, who did not get to witness Christ as we do on the pages of Scripture, but only saw the imperfect types and the forebearers of this message, and yet they saw in that enough to turn to God and place their faith in Him. And we should also learn a few things about the resurrection of Jesus, because that is what this ultimately points to. We know well that God has spoken. It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. You get one chance to do life right, one chance to make the decision to turn to Christ. And so we need to know what all of Scripture is pointing to. It both warns us and teaches us. You remember that from Colossians 1.28? It warning and teaching all throughout. We know that Jonah was cast in the sea to die, and at the last moment, he was entombed in the belly of a great fish. That is meant to remind us that hell is the destiny for everyone who stands outside the saving grace of God. And to stand outside of the saving grace of God is to deny the mercy and the grace that is offered freely to us by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're well aware that the Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death and also tells us that without the shedding of blood, without death, there is no forgiveness of sin. And you saw a type, a shadowy type of this last week, right? Jonah cast into the sea and then calms the sea, the wrath or the discipline of God. And the sailors were not saved. They were saved temporarily from the storm. 
But that sacrifice actually didn't atone for their sins. No man can save another because we're all sinners. So we might want to sacrifice our life for a child or a spouse, or, but we can't. We only owe God what we owe as sinners outside of Christ, which is death. Now, the sailor's salvation is going to come upon trusting in the saving grace of God, just as ours does. And so Jonah was cast into the stormy sea, this chaos, but it only points forward. It only points forward to a greater act of love, a greater sacrifice. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you, if you turn to me. He said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus voluntarily sacrificed himself for our sins. And just like Jonah, who was in the dark, abandoned by the goodness of God, Jesus too would suffer on the cross the abandonment of God as He suffered the wrath and fury of God against the sins of all who are going to turn to Him, to believe in Him. And Jesus shouted out, and we know those words, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everything points forward to Christ. This was a dreadful moment of history, a painful moment. A beautiful moment for those who will accept His saving grace. And Jonah is just a type in this fish pointing forward because we all begin life no different than Jonah. Every sinner follows a path that leads down only to death, only to eternal punishment. But in the ultimate act of love and mercy and grace, Jesus died in our place on that cross. He removes the wrath of God. He removes the ultimate storm from us. The Scottish theologian Gordon Ketty wrote this, and I think this is beautiful because it ties everything back to what Jesus has done. He said, Jesus paid the penalty of sin, expiation. He placated the displeasure of God against the sinner, his propitiation. He restored believers to the favor and fellowship of God, work of reconciliation. Jesus' death procures a new heart, regeneration a new record, forgiveness, and a new future, eternal life. For all who will trust in Him as their Savior and Lord, Jesus went through the hell of the earth for the sake of people like us. Jonah's three days in the fish emphasized that the wages of sin is death, and that if anyone was ever to be forgiven the consequences of his sin, then there had to be an atonement sufficient to cover the need. In this sense, Jesus' death and burial was the, quote, sign of Jonah for this generation. You see, until the world ends, God is going to continue to reach the lost with the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jonah seemed to be at his end. We know looking forward that three days later, he'll be spit out of the belly of this fish. He won't have died. And then he'll go preach a message. That calls for repentance and turning back to God. He'll call on men and women who hate God to stop sinning, to turn to Him. He was otherwise dead, according to the people who would have known what happened. Jesus was the same. When Jesus was taken off that cross, He was dead and buried from the perspective of the people. The disciples mourned. 
They locked themselves in an upper room. You see later that Peter and some of the disciples even decide to turn back to resume their old fishing career. But Jesus, too, rose from the grave. And at Pentecost, He poured out the Holy Spirit on all of His followers such that we would be empowered and emboldened to go proclaim His saving grace to everyone around us, calling them to repent, to trust in the Son of God for forgiveness and for life. That began with the twelve, and it continues through Christ's church, through all of us. God's sovereign grace is for sinners like me, like you, like those around us. And He ordains not only the salvation of people, but the means by which they are reached. And this is the fascinating part of Jonah. God could have used anybody to go preach to the Ninevites, but He chose Jonah knowing that Jonah was a rebel, knowing that Jonah would sin. And so it wasn't God's plan that a perfect man, a perfect prophet, would go speak to the wicked sinners of Nineveh. That wouldn't do. He chose a man who was going to rebel much in the same way, not the same sins, but the same way against the Word of God like Jonah. But in Jonah's case, he would give him a taste of God's power in judgment and death so that when he went and proclaimed to the Ninevites, He would not go as someone who did not know. He would go as someone who knew the power of God, His anger, but also His mercy and His grace because He would walk into the city, not as a perfect man who had never experienced this, but a man who could say, I have been redeemed by God. Hey, He saved me, and I know what He can do for you. Turn from your sins. That's exactly what we're called to do. We have to see that in ourselves as we proclaim the saving message of God of Jesus Christ to the world around us, we have to remember, we're not worthy. None of us are. He didn't save us because we were good. He saved us and hopefully makes us good as He conforms us to the image of His Son, but we're not saved by our own merit. We're saved by God through Jesus Christ. And we're reminded of this, aren't we, by Paul's words in 1 Corinthians? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I don't think any of us are here today, but if you are, come see me. I'd love to talk to you. No. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong or shame the wise. Chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. A Christian witness to the lost and spiritually dying, to all of those who are trapped in their sin, who are listening to the lies of the world, who cannot break out of it, our message to them is not that we are so good or that we're so faithful. Look at us and how we worship. That is not the message. Our witness is that we were once children of wrath, just like you, lost in our sins, but God plucked us from certain ruin and saved us by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He paid the price that we will all otherwise pay. He died on the cross. He was your substitute. He made atonement. The wrath of God was poured out on Him, if you will only believe. See, we will speak far more boldly about the beauty of Jesus Christ when we start understanding the gravity of our own sin, when we start looking internally, when you realize the price that was paid to save you. It's not an us and them. It starts internally. We were bought with a price, and the price was the life of the Son of God incarnate. And He paid that price to give us eternal life. What a wonderful message. Finally, and we'll close here. 
If any of you or anyone you know is trusting in your own works, who seem to think that you're good enough, you can keep stacking these things up and that God grades on a curve and, and he'll, he'll do it because I'm better than that guy or that gal who doesn't do what I do. Think again. Jonah gives you a type. Jonah gives you a shadow, a foreshadowing, a preview of the end that awaits all people who are found standing outside the righteousness of Christ. The wages of sin is death, but you have to grab hold of the last part of that verse. Romans 6.23, right? The wages of sin is death, but. That but is the part that we need to circle. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the free gift. That's the gift we proclaim. We'll all bow the knee, every single person, to King Jesus one day. The question is, during this life, have we humbled ourselves? Have we turned ourselves to trust in Him, in His gracious provision of life? We turn from sin. Will others turn from sin and follow Him for forgiveness in life? If the answer is no, what Jesus has said is true. Even the men of Nineveh, as wicked as they once were, will stand and condemn us at judgment. But God made the unbreakable promise, the wonderful promise, that to all who did receive Christ Jesus, who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God, both now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are always humbled by Your Word. The simplicity of it and the clarity of it and yet the complexity of it as you progressively reveal your plan to redeem people throughout time. Lord, we're thankful for the light that our Lord Jesus shed on this 8th century prophet. This picture, this type that you've given us was fulfilled in Christ. Lord, we're thankful that you have picked our time and place that we don't await the first coming of the Christ, but look back on Him, that we can see in Jesus a display of Your unfathomable, unlimited love. She would send Your Son to die, to suffer humiliation for us. Lord, please give us hearts that are open to the tremendous price that was paid to save us and give us life. Let that foster a love in us and an ever-present ever view of the beauty of Jesus. Lord, we pray that that fuels in us a boldness to speak clearly of Him to the world. And in these tumultuous times, when it seems that rebellion is celebrated and often even in a discouraging way seems to go unnoticed, we know that You notice. And we know that You have called Your people to be a light that you have called us to proclaim a message of repentance and faith, that indeed the kingdom of God is near in Jesus Christ. But Lord, help us as we go this week, serve rightly as his ambassadors, to bring glory to your name. We marvel at your words, Lord, that you forgive for your own sake, that it would give you great glory to forgive sinners. But Father, we pray that we might see an outpouring of your grace and the work of your spirit, and that we would see men and women turn 
to Jesus and come and gather to worship him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.